You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. Take your Bible and find John chapter 8. As you're turning there, I want to take a a few moments of our time. I'm going to do this uh, in every service this month. Uh, This month marks uh, the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And I know from a historical standpoint, there are many things within the body life of the church we just really don't have time to discuss or to talk about. But I've got a a feeling that over the next several weeks and months, everywhere you turn, you're going to see uh, this talk about uh, the Protestant Reformation and exactly what has taken place some 500 years ago. And even as we were singing this morning, I thought about uh, 500 years ago, the things that took place that allowed us to be able to gather as a church today and to worship uh, in the way that we have. I want to read a statement real quick, and then what I want to do over the next... Uh, as we gather tonight and Wednesday and, and, and Sunday morning, I want to take a historical figure from the past and share their story that allows us to hear the story today. But first, just a real quick, I'm reading this from a Theopedia uh, of, of a kind of a, a brief definition of really what the Protestant Reformation is. It's it's kind of confusing to a lot of us and what it means because as Baptists, we know that our, our, our start got a, as a Southern Baptist Convention came around in the 1800s. But I think as I read this, you'll understand that we owe everything that we have as a Baptist church to what took place 500 years ago. The Protestant Reformation was a major 16th century European movement aimed initially at reforming the belief and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you have to keep in mind what was taking place in the 1500s at the time. If you ever watch an old movie that dated back to the 13 and 14 and 1500s, we're talking about a corrupt Catholic Church at that time. And a lot of the things that were taking place instead of what God had intended to take place through revealed through His Word. The Reformation ended the unity imposed by medieval Christianity. In the eyes of many historians, the Protestant Reformation signaled the beginning of what we would call the modern era. In 1517, in one of the signal events of Western history, we read again, in, in 1517, 1517, that's 500 years ago, in one of the signal events of Western history, Martin Luther, a German Estonian monk, posted 95 theses on the church door at the university town of Wittenberg. This act was a common academic practice of the day and served as an invitation to debate. Luther's propositions challenged some of the portions of the Roman Catholic doctrine and a number of specific practices. 
So 500 years ago, Martin Luther's aim was not to, to split and leave the Catholic Church. And, and uh, his aim was to debate biblically the things that were taking place in order to bring around a, a biblical understanding and a biblical unity about what was taking place. The movement quickly gained inherits in the German states, in Netherlands, Scandinavia, Scotland, and portions of France. The term Protestant was initially applied to the Reformers, but was later used to describe all the group that protested the false doctrines being taught at the time within the Roman Catholic Church. As the hope of the reforming the church within faded, the Protestants were forced to separate from the corrupt church, resulting in what we know today as Lutheran churches in Germany, Scandinavia, and Eastern Europe countries, the Reformed Church in Switzerland and the Netherlands, Presbyterian churches in Scotland, and the Anglican Church of England, the other elements of which have evolved into the Protestant denominations of today. And so why that is such a big deal and why I think it's something to be addressed at its 500 is that history would tell you between the Lutheran Church, Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, and the Anglican Church, all of the history of Protestant churches today are traced back through those elements the first Baptist church was 1609, and it was a separation of the Anglican church of the Church of England. And so you can see where we don't discuss much within Baptist circles, the thing that took place that long ago. There is much that we owe to this Protestant Reformation. Uh, I decided this morning to read that because I just felt like that even listening on the radio, Christian radio, you're hearing references to that. And so I wanted to share that with you. And before I pray and begin preaching in John chapter 8, I want to share uh, a story, uh, a, a, quick, a quick little story of a man many years ago. In 1300s, John Wycliffe was born. Now, 1320, John Wycliffe was born. And so he is called the morning star of the Reformation. So picture 1320, this young man was born. He was born and educated in Oxford of England, and he began to look at the corruptness of the church, and he began to look at the, the view of the clergy, the, the view of the authority, and, the, and other things and practice that were going on. And so John Wycliffe had this great idea. Why don't we use Scripture as our sole authority? And he had another great idea in 1300s. What if everyone had a copy of Scripture in their own language? Well, you think that's a pretty good idea, isn't it? Well, at the time, that was not a good idea, but John Wycliffe did not care. And so before the invention of the printing press, John Wycliffe decided, I'm going to put the Bible in the hand of as many common people as I had, and they would have taken the, the, uh, the New Testament Vulgate written in Latin, and they would have taken that Bible and written it in the common language by hand, and in the 1300s began to distribute that so that every man can have a copy of the Word of God. He died of uh, complications from two strokes in 1384. And this is what's so sad about it. The corrupt church met and had a meeting. And in 1415, they decided that John Quickliffe was a heretic because the language and the word of God was not to be put in everybody's hand. The word of God should not be understood by the common man. That is what the church was for, to teach the word of God and explain the word of God to people. And so what they did, because they had, can you imagine this business meeting? So because they have, he had already died, they said, well, what are we going to do to this heretic? So they, they exhumed his body, 
They burned his bones and they cast his ashes into the river swift and condemned them a heretic. But you know what John Wycliffe is considered today? A hero. And so the history can teach us a lot. John Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Protestant Reformation. And we owe much to men and women that stood so that we can stand and sing and sit up under the word of God today. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for so many that have come before us in the Protestant Reformation and and the fight for the word and the fight for faith and the fight for the church. We are grateful for them. Lord God, I'm faithful for those that came after them in the 1600s and coming to our great country and starting these wonderful churches. I'm thankful for them. Lord, I'm thankful for the missionaries that have gone out and have shared the gospel at the ends of the earth. I'm thankful for godly grandparents. I'm thankful for the generations that have come before us here at our community. And Lord, I'm grateful for men and women of all history that were willing to stand on the word of God. And so, yes, Lord, there's been much corruption in the church of then and even in the church today. But we're grateful that we can gather this morning and we can sing your praises and we can open up the word of truth and learn from you. So, Lord, as we reflect this month, as literally all of the world reflects this month of an event that took place over 500 years ago, let us never take for granted so great a salvation that it is scripture alone and grace alone and faith alone for the glory of God alone and Christ alone that we can gather this morning. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, take your Bible, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, I I, I hate to start the sermon with a negative statement, but in your bulletin you're going to see it's just a statement. Some people have said that some of our earlier manuscripts do not have this passage of Scripture in it. And I will be the first to admit, until I got to seminary and studied Greek, I didn't have a clue what that meant. But if you look at your Bible, it will say John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11, and you'll probably find a footnote somewhere that reads, earlier manuscripts do not contain this text. And so when I went to to college and seminary, I began to understand exactly what that means. And so basically what that means is, is manuscripts have been found since the Bible was written, and we put these manuscripts together and we dated them. It's not like we've just dug up in Egypt the Bible. We have found manuscripts over centuries and come together and pieced together the wonderful word of God. And so uh, these uh, Greek scholars and Bible scholars have determined that in some of the earlier manuscripts, meaning written closer to the time of Christ, that this passage of Scripture is not there, but yet it is found in most of our English Bibles. And so I treat it that it is there, and I am going to preach through it. If you want to study through that, that is fine. Whether or not it was in the earlier manuscript, there's nothing that it says in here that is not biblical or nothing that is in there uh, that contradicts what Scripture teaches. So I do not say that because at no point should we ever doubt the Word of God. And that's why it is written in there that some manuscripts do not have. We never need to doubt the, the, the Word of God. I looked at it this way. I believe in the providence of God, and if it, is, if it is there and it has been in our English Bible, then I'm going to treat it as it is a truth that I can learn from, but we never need to doubt what God's Word is. So saying that, let's move on. 
Turn your Bible to John chapter 7, verse 53. We've been looking at John, the gospel, the idea of looking and live, of who Jesus Christ is, look and live, seeing Christ, know that you're a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has been teaching in the temple. He is literally making his way to the cross. He is facing intense opposition. The religious leaders, and I'm using that word in a negative sense, these religious leaders, their their hearts are wicked, their motives are impure. Their greatest desire is to have Jesus literally killed for what he stood for. They could not see the Savior because of the, the law and the works and the things that they had added to the word of God. And we have Jesus teaching in the temple. Verse 53, they went to its own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Chapter 8, verse 2, early in the morning he came to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses... He commanded us to stone such woman. So, so what do you say? So what say you? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and he wrote this finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, listen to these words, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the precious gift of your word. And this morning as we see the loving Savior, I pray that we understand the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of hypocrisy, and the serious wonder of forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for your presence in our midst this morning. Remove the distractions and the worries of the day. And as the songs that we have sung has prepared our heart, I pray that we receive your word with a sense of expectation and excitement. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this narrative, what I'd like to do is kind of do a a running commentary and, and then close with some things to do now. Things that we can learn, that we can again and live and to apply in our lives. So I've divided this uh, text up into three sections. First, this woman is caught in sin. Notice that early in the morning he came to the temple, he's teaching. And the scribes and Pharisees, they brought this woman who had been caught in adultery. They brought him into the midst. And so it's kind of an odd setting. Can you imagine that setting? Jesus is in the temple teaching. And he's teaching to the people, and all of a sudden this this crowd begins to form, and this little mob comes into the crowd, I should say. They come, they they bring this woman. Could you imagine the way she felt? They took the woman, they brought her before Christ, and they said, she was caught in adultery. What What do you say about this? What do you think would happen or should happen to her? 
Well, let's look and kind of see what's going on. We know from John chapter 5, verse 18, if you think back to that, at that point is the first reference that the religious people said, we are going to kill him. Now you think, just wrap your, have you ever been mad at somebody? I mean, have you ever been that, you know, you're mad at somebody? Have you ever said, okay, I'm so mad at this person, I want to kill them. But they looked at what, here's the, the crazy thing about it. We talk about irony. He was preaching about the good news of who he was. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the great shepherd. I'm the true vine. He's, all he's doing is saying, this is who I am. I have been sent by the Father. I came to do the Father's work. My ministry is a ministry of reconciliation and redemption. I am who that I am. And they said, we don't like that. Let's kill him. Because what he says goes against what religion says. Now, religion in that context is, is kind of like what had happened at the Reformation. We had taken religion, but let's say it started on a good thing. We, we take that which is good, and we, we get ourselves involved with it. But by the way, it doesn't take long for men and women to mess anything up. I mean, there's not a, you know, when you, when you look this side of heaven, people will say, you may be visiting with us today, and you may walk out of here today and go, I have finally, finally found the perfect church. Well, you're thinking that now, but I promise you I'll go about three or four minutes past 12, and you won't say that anymore. But people will come in and say, I finally found the perfect church. No, you have not, because I'm in it, and you're in it. And we can mess anything up. That's why Jesus came. And so that's why we don't focus on each other. What are we here to focus on? Jesus. And then we look at each other through the lens of Jesus. And so what, what they were upset about is Jesus was saying things that went contrary to what they were teaching. We are from Moses, and we're doing the work of Moses. How dare you say you are the Savior, and you came to do these things? And Jesus looked at him and says, listen, I am the better Moses. I am the greatest Moses. I have not come to abolish what Moses said. I came to fulfill what Moses said. So from the very beginning, they said, we are going to kill Christ. I'm not so sure that's what society is trying to do today. They don't want to kill the historical Jesus. They want to kill the salvific Jesus. They won't say that Jesus did not live or did not, was not around. They believe that there was a historical Jesus. But what the world says, we don't believe in this biblical Jesus. There's no difference. He came to do the will of the Father and nothing more. And that's what Scripture teaches us about Jesus Christ. They hated him. And so they created this elaborate lie so that they would have reason to kill Jesus. Now, this sounds crazy, but that's exactly what has taken place. And so here they are. They develop this clever scheme that they can put Jesus in a, a bad spot. So they brought this woman caught in adultery. Well, I guess you could say if she wouldn't be committing adultery, we wouldn't be here. Yes, so sin is very serious. And God always judges sin. 
I'll say that again. God always judges all sin. Anything that we do against the moral goodness and holiness of God and sin and thought, whether we do it or not do it, sin of omission, sin of commission, whether I, I do something that's a sin or I don't do something I need to do that is a sin, God is always going to judge that. We look at big sins and we forget about little sins. Now, sins come with a price, and sometimes the price is that some of the greatest sins I think lived out in the body life of the church is the little sins. And those sins numb us to the things of the Spirit. You know, we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't do that. Well, even if you define stealing, some of y'all come April the 15th, y'all steal. You'll figure that out. Those that you get it. Stealing is taking anything that does not belong to you. But sometimes in the body life of a church or in Christian circles, it's the little sins that, uh, that the devil uses the most. I call them numbing sins. We gossip, we talk about people, we have impure thoughts and motives. Nobody else knows but me and the Lord. But the devil uses those sins in our life and it numbs us to the goodness and holiness and righteousness of God. And we get to a place in our life that we become numb to the Spirit and what the Spirit is telling us. And we have zero spiritual growth and zero holiness pouring forth of our life, but we're committing no sins out here but we're just living this life of sin and we become numb to the goodness and the thing to the Lord but sin as always comes with a great price so yes the woman was called in sin but that word caught means something now think about the elaborate scheme of these guys do you know that Jewish law says in Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus chapter 20, they do not commit adultery. Leviticus chapter 20, if you commit adultery, it is punishable by death. But here's the key. It has to be witnessed. I take it a step further. The, the law said it had to be witnessed. The act had to be witnessed. Not the assumption of the act. The act itself. So play that through in your mind. It had to be seen. That's quite a plot, isn't it? We know that this woman is promiscuous in our community, in the Jewish community. Let's find a man. We're going to get a man that we know that is going to lure her into some situation, maybe by money, we don't know. We're going to lure this man in there. We're going to be hiding in the closet so we can see it. The man's not brought before them. The, the Levitical law said the man would have been brought before them. Where'd the man go? And so, yes, sins come with a great cost for this lady. But So they, they would have been in there. It would have been planned. It would have been staged. They would have been in the room. They would have seen the act going on. They would have busted out into the, in the midst of all of that and said, here we go. For the only reason to take them to Jesus Christ to hear his opinion. on They put a lot of thought. This sin came with a lot of thought. Yes, she committed a sin, but they did as well. They brought him to Christ and they said, Jesus, you decide. And this is what their thought. If he says he needs to be stoned or killed, he's agreeing with the law. 
And if he agrees with the law, it takes away everything he'd already said about coming to fulfill the law. That he, brought, he offers forgiveness and he offers redemption and he's the new bread, the, the living water. It goes against everything he had been teaching in the temple so passionately about the new way and that he came to fulfill and that he was going to be a sacrifice and there's going to be a new covenant and an outpouring of the Spirit within your life. So if he says she must be stoned, they know that it will contradict everything he said says and he'll lose his following but if he says the woman is not stoned then it goes against the law and they could have had him arrested and killed immediately you ever tried to pull something over on God before usually never works out does it so that's a picture of what sin looks like Look at verses 6 through 9. They said to test him. They brought him before the charge against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him of that sin among you be the first to stone her. They, uh, once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But Jesus heard it and they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman before them. The second section, as we look at this running commentary, is the, it shows the deceit of man's wicked heart. Now, here's one of those things. No matter what you think, it doesn't matter. What was Jesus writing? We can't say that we know. Why can't we say that we know? It doesn't tell us. So we assume. I thought this, I, I take notes and everything when I'm studying. I, I wrote in parentheses, I don't know what he said, but it must have been good. But what did he do? What was he writing? Let me point out some things to you. This is I think. I think the woman would have come in and probably would have been like pushed to the ground. Can you, can you imagine being caught, caught in adultery and brought in a public place and thrown down and said this woman was caught in adultery? I guarantee you she was laying on her face on the ground. What did Jesus do? He bent down. I think he wanted to look this woman in the face. Can you imagine that look? I believe he would have looked at her in the face and, 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 and he's writing. I don't know if he's writing to her. You know, I, I tell people one of the biggest struggles I had about becoming a pastor was my past. I remember sharing with, uh, uh, it's kind of intimidating when you have a, 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 a person on the pulpit committee that's a judge. I won't give names out. <laughs> this would have been the, the first vote. That's a joke. We get it. I said, now when you go back, 
I was busy in the 80s. And I never forget he went, okay, whatever. Well, we got your background check back. Wow, you were busy in the 80s. Now I got y'all be on y'all be on one eight y'all be googling when you come back background check Pastor John Beck you'll be paying that twenty five ninety nine to get the background check. Most of that stuff had a lot to do with Saturdays and college football in the South. Let's just leave it at that. But one of the biggest struggles I had about being a pastor was my past. Coming to faith in Christ at a young age, but not living it out. And thinking, how can I stand before people and say, this is what the Christian life looks like? And I remember talking to my pastor at the time about that, and he said, John, none of us are worthy. There's not a soul that's a believer today that is worthy of our salvation. If the world knew all of our sin, could you imagine that? What a great picture of being caught in a sin and Jesus bending down, I think, so that he could look at her. And he wrote on the ground, and I don't want to embellish what I think, but he he wrote on the ground, and they continued to ask him, what do you think, what do you think, what do you think? Let him who, and then so then bent down they, with the finger ground, they continued to ask him. And then he stood up. Now who's he looking at? Looking at them. I believe, I think this is very consistent with Scripture. Before that woman opened her mouth, God saw her heart. He saw her heart. And in his providential God way, he knew that she was sorry. When he stood up, he saw their heart. And he knew they didn't. That they were never going to be sorry of anything they did before Christ. I think some of us probably need to let go of some of our past and move on. Give it, you know, you know, remember the youth group days, nail it to the cross. Bring the stone to the altar and leave it. And we, you know, in the past I've made fun of that. I always, I don't know why, I just make fun of emotional things because I guess in my life, you know, in the youth group, I had the same guy nail the same nail a hundred times. Quit nailing the nail and do something about it. Good gracious. I think some of us need to take some things to the cross and say, you know what, you have forgiven me. I'm the one that keeps going back to the cross. We keep nailing that back. Listen, none of us are worthy of our salvation. If you've repented of your sin, move on. Be thankful for grace. Be thankful that Christ looked into your eyes and heart and allowed you to change. But he wrote on the, you know, he wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote. I get what I think he wrote. I think he wrote something about her. And I think he wrote something about them. What if, what if Jesus wrote out the name of the man with the woman? 
What if Jesus wrote out, can the, a Pharisee be Billy Bob? He's from the southern kingdom. So Pharisee, the Billy, Billy Bob the Pharisee. Billy Bob called Leroy, and Leroy called the woman, and the woman did that, and then did this. And could you imagine Jesus writing out all that took place? Or oh, even better, what if Jesus was writing Old Testament scripture that talked about the wickedness of the heart? And what if Jesus was writing out Old Testament verses that pointed to their wickedness and their, their setting up this woman and the, and the goodness of God? What if Jesus was writing out these verses for them to see? Now, there's a crowd there, right? What if, what if Jesus is writing out false accusations? What if Jesus is writing out these things not only for the woman to see, not only for the man to see, but could you imagine standing room only? Can you imagine the crowd pouring in, trying to get a, a peek of what is going on? I believe he looked at the woman. I believe he wrote those words. I, I think maybe the first words might have been for them. Looked at the woman, wrote for them, and he stood up and he looked him in the eye. And then he wrote back down and began to write about the woman. Maybe he wrote out some Old Testament things that she would have been familiar. I don't know. But notice what happened. One by one, they left him. They went away one. I've, I've heard preachers say over the years, he started writing out their names one by one. You did this. You did that. I don't know. One by one, they began to leave. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. So we have the sin of the woman and the men, but we have the, the deceit of their hearts. Now we see, verses 10 and 11, the forgiveness of the Savior. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Because in order for, it, for her to be guilty, there had to be witnesses that saw it. More than one, they saw it. If there's no witness, guess what? No crime. Woman, where are they? Now granted, don't, don't lose track of this. There's a big crowd here. I think the, the accusers would have been standing there watching and snarling and all excited. And as Jesus began to play this out, I think they just kind of slipped off into the crowd. And one by one, they backed their way out of the crowd. And the next thing you know, there's this, this crowd is still standing here. They're looking at Jesus and the woman, but all the accusers are gone. And they're looking up saying, well, if there's, if there's no accuser. And it says that she stood up. That Jesus stood up, the woman was standing before him, Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Because there were no accusers, Jesus did not have to weigh in. Can you imagine the, the, the meeting after that meeting? They went to Billy Bob the Pharisee's house. Well, that didn't work. No, it didn't work. You could say this, that this is a theme of history. This is a theme of the Bible. This is the theme of everything. Nothing stops what God is doing. Ever. And even in the things of our life that look bad and wrong and we don't like, nothing stops the redemptive 
purpose of God. Where are they? Where are they to condemn you? They're not here, Lord. Jesus says, neither do I. The law came to condemn. The law cannot bring forgiveness. The law was you committed adultery. The law cannot forgive. Only Jesus can. Look at John 3.16 and following. It's such a a great verse. I I think we need to continue to always read on. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 4, verse 17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. What does the law do? It points out that we are in need of a Savior. What does the law do today? It points out that we need redemption. So the woman was already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to forgive. Jesus, Christianity is not a religion of, you know, the world that, oh, y'all, y'all hate people. Well, we shouldn't hate people. Christianity did not come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. Jesus Christ brings the offer of hope into an already condemned world. I guess that's a, a way you, you think about it. Anybody that you come in contact with that has never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, has never been born again, we're going to look at that tonight about assurance If they have never been born again, they are condemned already. Already. She was condemned because the law condemned her. We're condemned without Christ because the law has already condemned us. We can't keep the law perfectly. Only Christ kept it perfectly. And now because we are His, we're clothed with His righteousness and our sins forgiven. Notice what he said. Go and do what? Sin no more. She can go and live differently because why? She has been born again. She laid on that ground. uh, it It doesn't matter that she committed adultery, but she did. She laid on that ground a dead in their trespasses and sin adulteress. And then Christ forgave her. And she was born again. Isn't that incredible? I once was lost and now I'm what? Found blind. I mean, it's a great song. Why? Because that is what happened. You own the, you're a dead, depraved, adulteress. Come to your feet. You're born again. Go and live like you've been born again. Go and sin no more. Four closing thoughts as we bring the text to our heart this morning. One, God is holy and just and he must punish sin. He will punish sin. A child's definition of sin that spoke to me greatly 
This is real deep and theological, and it's going to be hard for you to understand. Sin is anything God doesn't want us to do, and we do it anyway. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Sin is anything that God does not want me to do, and I do anyway. That is sin. Big sin. Our little sins. Here's the dilemma with sin. A lot of times we don't sin because we don't want to get in trouble. Instead, I don't want to sin because I love God and His holiness so much. What can I do and still have fun but not sin? I don't want to get into trouble. It's kind of like the idea. Now, I've heard you can drive seven miles over the speed limit and not get a ticket. Instead of, God, I want to live my life because you are gracious and righteous and holy. The world is not my standard. The, the popularity is not the standard. Whether or not I get in trouble is not the standard. You're the standard. Anything I do that I know that you do not want me to do, Lord, I do not want to do. In thought, in attitude, in action, nothing. Secondly, when we are dealing, here's a word for the day, when we are dealing with corporate sin. What is the goal? Condemnation or restoration? Hey, I caught somebody doing something wrong. Bring them before the church. Let's condemn her. Instead of, hey, let me share with you what God says about something. And I want to introduce you to Jesus Christ. You don't have to continue to live this way, but you can change. That's a huge difference. We love to point out everybody's sin, but are we pointing out everybody's sin for condemnation or are we pointing out everybody's sin for restoration? Church history, we're talking about 500 years of church history. Church history is full of church discipline. I will submit to you, I think one of the problems that we have in our churches today is you can't tell where the church is. It's like trying to pick up a piece of jello. And I mean by that, who's born again, who's not? Everybody, in the, everybody, 90% of the United States says they're born again believers. You know, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that's not the case. But many years ago, we got away from calling, and I, always, I use the same example over and over and over, Wendell Smith's great, 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 great uncle down at Bear Creek Baptist Church back in the 1800s called their cousin frolicking. And they brought him before the church, and guess what happened? The church voted him out of fellowship until he repented. Before we leave, I've got a list of people I know frolicked yesterday. Most of them are Gator fans because you were nervous about Vanderbilt. I got a list right here. We're going to bring you up one at a time. Could you imagine what would happen? Now, the world has taken that which was good and turned it into condemnation instead of restoration. But imagine this place. Not this place. Imagine the perfect place to where. A brother or sister gets away from the Lord and just kind of gets sidetracked and a brother could come up to them and say, Now, John, reel it in a little bit. You're acting more like you than like Jesus. But you did it because you loved them. 
that we point out the error of our way. We, we're, we're standing on truth in our society, but we're not using social media to be sarcastic and make fun of people that don't believe like us. That's a great idea. Yes, we need to say this is right and this is wrong. This is what God says. This is what God does not say. Here's how we need to live our life. But we're not condemning people because of We're pointing out sin, but the issue is not condemnation. We want them to see the errors of our ways so that there can be restoration. Yes, she committed adultery. Yes, she was guilty. But Jesus forgave her and restored her. That needs to be lived out more. We need to stand on truth. We need to know truth. We need to live truth out. But we not to be so quick to condemn, but lovingly share the truth so that we can be agents of reconciliation. So God is holy and must punish sin. Secondly, when dealing with personal and corporate sin, condemnation should not be our goal, but redemption. Number three, Jesus knows our hearts, thoughts, and motives. Therefore, our true heart, our true thoughts, our true motives are always bare before Christ. There's two ways to look at that. One, you can't hide from God. So quit. This facade is not working because he knows the motive of your heart. But there's also a different way. He knows your heart, and he knows when you're trying. You ever have a day like that? You really are trying. You just don't get anything accomplished. We're going to talk about that tonight. One of the dangers that we have of assurance, which is the unhealthy view of assurance, we think we're not perfect. We think we can't do enough, so we think we must not be saved. That's not right. God knows our heart. He knows when we are really trying. Love him and worship him. He knows you. He created you. He didn't ever ask you to be perfect. He just asked you to be blameless. Blameless is when you stand before the Lord. I use this example all the time. I have three children that act three different ways. We try to consistently discipline the same way, but they're just different. And so when this child does this, we go, well, he's always, it's just what he does. When this child does what that one does, and now wait a minute, you don't normally, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I know this child's blameless because that's just him. I'm always going to come in and out of the house ten times for something. We finally took the chime off the alarm. Ding, 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 ding. Keys, coffee cup, cell phone, notebook, Bible. One day I'm just going to start walking down the street. Oh, I forgot my car, you know. Sharon just sits there, that's three, four, oh, he must be at the church now. This morning I called twice, hey, I forgot something. Am I stupid? No, I'm so full of the word of God, I don't have room for anything else. <laughs> so that's why when you come up to me at 9.30 and you say, hey, don't forget to announce, never heard it, gone, Boom. Don't forget, I've got surgery tomorrow. Gone. I'll think about it Friday. Because I'm so full of the word. There's no room for anything else. When I get to heaven, God's going to say, Whew, that's over. He did. But I tell you what, he did what he could do with what we gave him. He's a good, you know, I really believe that. Some of us, 
We're not trying enough. Some of us just need to slow down and rest. God knows your heart. Last, and we could say the most important. Jesus Christ is where justice and mercy meet. Justice is doing what you do because someone has done something against the law. Just, justice, when, when someone goes to hell, God is a just God when they go there. Because they've never repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. Everything that God allows and does is just. Meaning he can do it because he's God. When you get a speeding ticket and you are over seven miles an hour, but someone told you you can go seven miles an hour and they still give you a ticket for going seven miles an hour, they are just because you went over. Jesus Christ is where justice, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, the second that you repented of your sin and you placed your faith in Christ, that is where justice and mercy meet. Justice is you deserve this. Mercy is, I'm giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is that Christ forgives us of our sin. He quickens our spirit. He looks into our heart. He looks into our eyes of our, of our spiritual mind. And he opens up our heart and mind to who he is. That is, that is mercy. While just in his dealings, he is full of compassion and care. So come to him. Receive his forgiveness. And go and sin no more. Let's stand as we pray. Lord God, we do thank you so much for the, the gift of reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful just as real as you looking down and peering into the heart of that woman that that is how deep your love for us is today. This whole process of salvation is just so mind-boggling to us as human beings that there is a loving, providential, sovereign God that has sent His Son and the Spirit and is working as Father and Son and Holy Spirit to redeem us, to regenerate us, to allow us to even hear the Word this morning so that we may respond by faith and receive the forgiveness of sin. Oh, how deep that love is for us. And Lord, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here today that has never received that forgiveness of sin, that today would be the day that they have that assurance that they know that they are right with you. Lord, for those that are believers, I pray that you would just convict our heart of who you are, that you would show us our attitude, our actions, our motives, our desires. And let us be as that woman that first met her Savior. Let us remember and reflect about your goodness and your love and forgiveness. And Lord, as we sing now, let us respond with our heart and our mind to the preaching of your word. And this we ask in Christ's name.